They just came on now. Let's try to get closer to the stage. Sorry. Do you want to go on my shoulders? Yeah, that'd be unreal, thanks. Wow. Three celebrates connections made by music this summer. Find out more at 3.ie forward slash music. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is Andrew Thielander. Andrew, welcome. Oh, thank you, Maggie. Thank you very much. Now, before we begin our discussion, just to give listeners a sense of the book, can you read to us a bit from Last Birds? Uh, yes, yes, I will. Uh, I will read a, a short excerpt. Um, just by way of introduction, I'll say that the uh, the narrator of the book is uh, is an only child whose parents um, died in a tragic car accident. And uh, with the uh, the small proceeds of the estate, he managed could only buy a rundown hut in a, a, an abandoned township up in the mountains. Um, but the one piece of modernity he has is that um, the hut does have a telephone line. Um, all right, uh, this is from Last Birds. Although money was tight, I was able to afford a few art supplies. And this was when I began setting my trap in the bush every day and painting whatever I caught. A full year's worth of watercolours was piled on the table when something mind-boggling happened. The telephone rang. Uh, hello, who's there? I said. For a while there was silence. Then a voice spoke. It's your sister. Uh, I don't have a sister. It's the sister you never knew you had. What's your name? Primrose, and how do you know you're my sister? That's a long story, she said, but it's time you were told. Yes, it's the truth, I swear. Primrose rang and said she was my sister. You can imagine what was going through my head. Or maybe you can't. Nothing was going through my head. I was at a complete loss. She spoke for two full hours. I barely said a word, but I listened to everything. And not just the story itself. I listened to the breathing and the silences, and most of all to the voice. At times it was deep and drab like a farmer's. Then it would become sharp like a school, te school teacher's. And then it would suddenly fall and flutter like a leaf blown about in the wind. Primrose's voice was never the same for long, and that made me doubt. It's not that I thought she was hiding the truth. She didn't seem to know the truth. Perhaps I shouldn't have said that. It's just that Primrose's mind seemed to be like a bunch of street urchins, all fighting for control of a single toy. One of them would get it, and then it would be yanked away by another, and so on. In the end, though, I had to accept that what she said was right. She was my sister, or half-sister, if you want to nitpick. She knew things about my dad, private, personal things, that could only be explained by someone having a close-up relationship with him. He was real to her in the same way that he was real to me. The details of the story, the interpretations and impressions, well, you could argue with those, but the guts of the story was true. Primrose was my sister. I still didn't know what to think, let alone say. It was bloody hard. How can you go from being an only child to a brother in the space of two hours? 
How can your mind adjust? She probably thought I was a mute or an idiot, but if she did, she didn't let on. You mustn't think of him as an adulterer, she said. I think she was trying to comfort me, but all it did was bring up memories of Father Paratus shouting about adulterers and some place he called the Lake of Fire. I think it's down New South Wales somewhere, but I can't be sure. It's a very strange feeling, finding out that someone you thought you knew really well had another side you knew nothing about, a secret life. Sure, you can let it upset you. I mean, why did he feel the need? Weren't Rum and I enough for him? Did he feel unloved, unpunished? Did I do something wrong? There's lots of questions you can ask if you want to be miserable. But it's better to do what Tawdry does. Cock your ears up and take it all in, then lay yourself down in a nice shady spot, grab a branch and chew. Wallabies are good at digesting facts. In fact, I'm pretty sure they hold the world record, but I'd have to check on that. It all seemed to have happened in Shannon Street. That's in Gympie. Primrose didn't mention her mum's name or the name of the hotel. I didn't ask. No thought goes into names anymore. But it was a happy story on the whole and one I was happy to listen to. Primrose had lots of memories. They were her memories, without a doubt. But I couldn't help feeling they belonged to me too, even though I was never in them. I was still there in the background. I wasn't mentioned, and neither was Mum, but we were still there. It was one of those stories where you just can't cut people out, even by not mentioning them. On my seventh birthday, he gave me a beautiful satin dress with pink roses embroidered around the hem, Primrose said. It must have cost a fortune. Yes, I said, but I really couldn't picture my dad buying something so expensive. I'd asked him for a leather belt once. It was for my school trousers. Do you know how much a leather belt costs, he asked. Then he made me tie my trousers with the orange rope we used when we bailed the hay. And for my 16th birthday, he gave me a gold chain, Primrose said. Yes, I said. On my 16th birthday, we had had a meal of corned beef and cabbage. Father said there was an emergency and told me to ask Jensen for a week's wages in advance. And he took us to the moving pictures, she said. Yes, I said, he was a special man. It really did make me feel warm around the heart to know that Dad had been so generous and loving, even though it wasn't to me. You've got to look at it from the right angle. It was like in the Gospel of Luke. You never patch an old garment with a patch taken from a new one. It doesn't make sense. Dad had been very wise with his garments, perhaps even as wise as Solomon. Uh, but maybe I should ask Father Barabbas about that. He was bringing your mother to meet us on the day of the accident, Primrose said. Did you know that? No. Your mother had found out. Father wanted to keep things separate, but she insisted on meeting us. Only the accident intervened and, well, yes. We were silent for a long time after that. Then a question arose in my mind. Were you at the funeral? No, she said. Mother was hysterical. She disappeared the night before. I haven't seen or heard from her since. The Lord has punished you. Yes. So you've never seen me. Not even a photograph. As I said, Father wanted to keep things separate. Dad was very wise, I said. But how did you get my telephone number? 
I spoke to Jensen at the sawmill, she said. Uh, I understand now. And she told me she was studying zoology at the University of Queensland in Brisbane. She told me about her life there, the science professors, the honours medal she had her eye on. The other students were friendly. They sometimes went for trips to Southport and drank Coca-Cola. She liked Brisbane, especially the cliffs at Kangaroo Point. If you look hard enough, you can see faces in them, she said. But she said nothing at all about Kimpy. Well, it's been wonderful talking to you. I really must telephone again sometime, she said. Yes, you must, I said. And she did. Mm. I'm glad you chose that to read. That's a, a very, um, shall I put it, pregnant passage. A lot to reveal yeah. there, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, the, the, the moment that um, he discovers that he's not uh, alone in the world after all. I'd, I'd like to talk about something that I think that passage brings up very clearly, which is the idea of the reality shift. There's a lot of different truths coming out there, and they're not all the same, even though there are, some of them are about the same thing. For example, the father and his different faces. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, and and the idea, I think, that, uh, that you know, the surface pictures are not not always accurate in what they seem, um, and uh, we can you know quite often think things that uh, that are completely uh, completely wrong. Yes, I mean even Primrose, you know, you you get the sense, and uh, you know, quite literally, it's it's said by the protagonist that there are a lot of different things going on, that she's many people in one. Yes, indeed. Um, that's, that's, certainly, uh, that's certainly correct. Uh, and I, I think Primrose in particular is um, perhaps in, in many ways, uh, you, you might say a, a, a damaged person from her, from her upbringing and, and what have you. But, uh, but these things do have an effect, you know, even, even though uh, you know, one can have a, an idyllic childhood, um, these things can still have an effect. And I suppose that, you know, she, she interestingly, you get the, the perspective in that passage itself, that the narrators had the hard childhood and, you know, Primrose has been given the easy one. She's had all the nice stuff given to her. I, I, you know, I love the comparison of the dress with the orange robe. Um, you know, that he has to hold his trousers up with. But um, that's not quite the case, is it? I mean, you know, you can look at it from a completely different perspective. And again, there's these different realities happening at the same time, where it's the protagonist who is, I suppose, the secure and stable, strong one, and Primrose, who's the damaged one. Yes, that's right. At, at the end of the day, I suppose it, it all comes down to, to how you keep with, or sorry, how you cope with, what um, life deals out to you, and uh, um, the protagonist, as you say, is a, a fairly bizarre character, and how he copes with uh, with these things is, I think, one of one of the attractions of the story. A, a lot of writing likes to put ordinary people in bizarre situations and see how they react, but my preference is is to put bizarre characters in ordinary situations and, and to observe their reaction and and, uh, and also how they relate to uh, to other people and so 
you know, here you have a, a protagonist who, uh, who is quite a strange person, a loner, and has been all his life, and um, how he copes with uh, all of the ordinary aspects of life, I think, is, is often fun to write about. But I suppose, too, if you take the other characters, the, you know, the ordinary characters that are in the book, and I suppose there are quite a few of them, and put them next to your protagonist, they don't seem so ordinary either. I mean, anybody, if you look closely enough, have, has all sorts of interesting things. The university professor, for example, bubbling under the surface. Yes, yes, that's, that, that's very true. Um, that's very true. But, uh, and, and I suppose it's the, it's the situation, though, and, and the, the relationships that uh, allow those aspects to come out in a character. And, yes. uh, and, and it's only in those situations that you uh, that you actually see them. Mm. So t tell me a little bit about how the book came about. What inspired it? Okay, that's that's often it's an interesting question, and it's often a difficult one to answer, as, as I'm sure you know, because novels get their inspiration from so many different sources. But one of the um, one of the main themes, I suppose was derived from uh, uh, a prank that we had in Australia back in 1971 and that was when I was about 11 years old and it involved some people in a very small country town in South Australia near the Nullarbor Plain and they, they gave to the newspapers some pictures of a young girl who they said was living wild with kangaroos. Um, now, you know, it was a... <laughs> It was a very clumsy prank because the photographs were obviously black and white and they were very grainy and they had dressed this young girl up in the distance to look like your, uh, your standard cave woman. You know, she had some animal skins wrapped around her, her shoulder um, and uh, it didn't take long, of course, for the, the whole thing to be, uh, to be uncovered as a, as a prank. Um, but it came up, it was like Australia's answer to the, the wolf children in Asia. And it got me to thinking, you know, would, would it be possible to actually live wild with kangaroos? And what sort of a person would do it? And why would they do it? Um, and that's, that's one of the, uh, the aspects of the book, is that it tells the story of somebody who ends up uh, living completely wild with kangaroos and how they got there. And, uh, and you know what uh, what led them to that uh, that situation and, and what it was like. Mm. And and of course one of your key characters, Tawdry, is in fact a wild kangaroo. Um, but he's pretty wise, isn't he? Yes, it's that's Tawdry. Tawdry is actually a, a swamp wallaby, and um, uh, she she's an orphan swamp wallaby, which the the, the narrator of the story has was given. And uh, he, he raises her. And um, yes, he, he, he used Tawdry to learn a, a lot of questions and to see how she, how she lives and how she reacts and, and so on and so forth. And so yes, Tawdry is, uh, is one of the main characters in the, in the book. Have, have you ever kept a wallaby? Um, I've, I've never kept one, but I've lived in the, in the country and I've, I've had a lot to deal with, uh, had a lot to do with swamp wallabies. Uh, of all the kangaroo family, they're the ones who have the, the widest diet. 
And so if you live in the country, as I did, and you try and grow a vegetable patch, and particularly broccoli, they love broccoli. Um, but I, in fact, I, I never got to eat any of the broccoli that I grew because <laughs> the, uh, the, the night before I had decided to pick it, um, the swamp wallabies would always get into the vegetable patch somehow and eat it. Uh, so, <laughs> but they're, they're adorable creatures and uh, they're, they're delightful to watch and, uh, and they can, even in the wild, once they get used to you, they can be, uh, become quite tame. Yes, I've never seen what's eaten my vegetable patch, but I suspect that uh, it could well be wallabies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they always wait for that moment, just when it's ready. <laughs> They seem to know, yep, they seem to know when, when to, to come and get it. Yes. It must be something to do with the smell. Do you think uh, in some ways, and I, I certainly get this sense from the book, that the human, human race is a little deaf to the wisdom of animals and birds? Yes, I think so. Um, and I was... I, I was raised and brought up in the in the Catholic education system and I was obviously raised as a Christian and that, that was probably the one aspect of the teachings that I always had greatest difficulty with you know a, a lot of the controversial teachings of the, the Catholic and Christian churches um, I was quite happy to go along with but uh, it never it never seemed correct to me to say that you know animals were uh, were a completely and essentially different form of life and that they didn't have a soul and so, you know, they never continued beyond death and, and those sorts of things. I, 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 never, I never accepted that and, um, and that was why I think I later on in my life became interested in Buddhism because Buddhism said the opposite, that, you know, there is this continuity of consciousness and that... Uh, um, that in previous times, human consciousness can have been animal consciousness, and uh, that there was no essential, uh, essential, and uh, totally separating difference between the two. Uh, so yes, I, I I think that um, there is a lot to be uh, to be learnt from uh, from animals and watching them and their behaviour. Yes, uh, I suppose um, the real antagonist in your book is the government. Um, there are others, of course, such as Primrose's university professor. Do you, do you feel like the, the, the key antagonist in the book is officialdom, bureaucracy, the sort of uh, faceless forces of, you know, what is and what isn't respectable or appropriate? Yes, I think, um, and that, that comes out probably with, with a number of the characters, um, and that these are characters who, are, you know, as you know nowadays, we're really swamped with with laws and regulations every way we turn. You know, that there are there are so many different laws and regulations um, put upon us um, that we no longer spend so much time thinking about what's right and wrong. We just think about what's lawful and what's what's unlawful and what will get us into trouble with officialdom and what will keep us away from trouble with officialdom. Um, and whereas a lot of, or some of the characters in the book aren't taken with that way of thinking, they're, they're more into, well, what's right and what's wrong, and they use that as their rudder, 
um, regardless of whether it's going to get them into trouble with the law or not. Uh, so I, I, yeah, I, I think that's uh, that's very much an, an, an important point. And uh, as, as you may or may not know, I was trained as a lawyer and spent about ten years of my life acting as a lawyer. And uh, even during that time, you know, I was so busy that um, no, nobody really has any time to stop and think. Well, you know, is it good to have a law like this on the statute books? Do we really need it, or should we just leave those types of decisions up to people uh, to to make for themselves? And of course, you left law to study to write, I guess, but also you studied ethics, didn't you, when you when you left? Yeah, I I left law to uh, to have a go at uh, at writing, and later on, um, I uh, decided to do a, a master of ethics uh, degree, which I did. Uh, I, I imagine nobody doing that degree ever plagiarizes. <laughs> uh, well, no, 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 indeed. But uh, uh, yeah, it was it was a strange thing to do. I I, I didn't really take it any further. You know, I, I can remember seeing a, a cartoon um, once in which there was a a boardroom full of executives, and uh, the chairman of the boardroom says to his um, his secretary, you know, Miss Smith, can you please go and find us somebody who can tell right from wrong? Uh, and um, that was at the time, really, when this ethics was becoming a very big thing, and and uh, it was it was almost becoming like a profession in itself that you could actually employ somebody to come and tell you right from wrong. Um, but I'm I'm not too taken with that idea. <laughs> I. I that uh, there are so many different ways of looking at things and different ways that you can justify something as right and wrong. Uh, that um, the, the idea that somebody can make a profession out of it uh, just doesn't quite fit right with me. Particularly if they're sitting on a, a board of directors, because there's obviously sh shareholder imperatives that might skew that a bit. Yes. Yes, that's uh, that's right. Um, and as as I say, there, there are there are all manner of, of different um, theories that have been put up as to how to determine right from wrong. And uh, you know, it's, it gives you essentially the opportunity to shop around. But um, if you if you want to do something, you you go and find one of these theories that uh, says that you know yes, it's ethical to do that. And um, you use that particular theory as your uh, as your justification. A bit like Mike's statistics, I suppose. But uh, you know, right. one one of your best characters, one of your by best, I mean one of your um, I guess most right characters is the lawyer Gopal Singh. Yes, yes, that's right. Or well, he's he's um he's you could almost say he's the hero of the whole story, and he's he's, he's probably the only one who has much common sense um, and he was uh, was a very famous uh, lawyer in India who is back in Australia for, for personal reasons and he, he obviously has has a, a bit of a personal crisis himself but uh, he's the he's probably the, the most mainstream character in the book he stands up for himself and um, and is prepared to 
to stand up to officialdom and, and argue against it. And uh, um, yes, yeah, so he, that, that's what what you say is very true. Mm. He's certainly a force for good in the book. And do you feel that um, you know, having studied law and ethics, that in in some ways, I guess the relationship between the two, one of which is you know how you work the system, and the other is how you judge what is and what isn't um, morally right. In many ways, those are some of the underlying themes in the book and what almost drove you to you know, pulling it together. Yes, well, that, yes, that's, that's true. Um, the, the book does present a, a range of different ways of looking at the situation. Of course, what we're dealing here with the, the, the narrator of the book has, has accidentally trapped um, the last paradise parrot which is a, a bird that is extinct here in Australia. Um, and eventually, you know, the authorities learn about it and step in and various other people turn up with, with claims of various sorts. And so you, it, it, it's a good way to see different ways of looking at the situation, you know, what's, what's best for the bird, what's best for the scientific community, what's best for the community as a whole, and, you know, what what should be done with this bird that is the last of its uh, of its kind. Uh, and um, there's a whole range of, of different interpretations of that in the book, some of them, you know, mainstream, but um, others are very, very out of the mainstream. Mm. Another interesting thing that uh, I think comes out of the book is, you know, how we collect and keep, I suppose, beauty, images, birds that we've seen, you know, there's a whole range of ways in which memory is, is trapped and beauty is trapped. And you've got a number of people who sort of springboard off this, the parrot um, and provide you know, different perspectives on how it might be kept in one way or another. Yes, yes, that's right. Uh, that's right. And, and it depends on their, their agenda too, you know, like for, for example, uh, Somebody with a scientific agenda might be most interested in the scientific data that can be derived from a bird, you know, whereas somebody who might be a, a, a nature lover might look at the bird and, and be more focused on the, the beauty aspects of it and, and, um, and you know, how, watching how the bird behaves and, uh, and, and just, um, just looking at it as, as a living creature rather than, you know, as a as a source of data. Mm, an artifact. Yes, that's, that's right. And, uh, and, and, you know, somebody else who might be a taxidermist might look at it for, uh, you know, to see how it could be preserved and, and what pose it might be stuffed in and put in a museum ultimately, uh, along with various other you know, historical artifacts from, uh, from history. So there, there are lots of different ways of, uh, of of looking at it, and it all sort of seems to stem from the, the personal agenda, the eyes of the beholder. Mm. And I suppose that's one of the things that makes the book quite interesting reading to see how that you know this the the different characters sort of pivot and grow and change around the notion of this bird, this bird that um, has been found. Yes, that's that's right, and uh, where where it. Um, where it all leads them, and and uh, and you know how how they how they turn out as as judged by their uh, by their actions. So uh, 
Yes, that um, that uh, is very much the uh, uh, the, the source of uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the story. Mm. Now, Last Birds is your first novel, um, but I know it's not the first piece of writing. Tell me a little bit about some of the other work that you've written or or planning to write. Um, yes, Last Birds is is my first uh, fiction novel. Um, I have co-authored some English language textbooks for the Swedish school system, and I've I've done a lot of writing for those. Uh, and uh, you know that was fi fiction writing. I, I do have a bit of a background as a teacher of English as a second language as well. Uh, and, and I've also written some short stories, uh, you know, some of which I've won the odd minor minor prize or, or publication. Uh, and at the moment, I I wrote a short story um, which which won a minor prize, and I'm currently continuing that story into into a novel length, um, and it's uh, hopefully going to going to deal with the uh, the theme of climate change. Mm. Oh, we'll, we'll look out for that. Yes, but uh, and uh, again, with with my writing, I I like to um, to get people who are sort of out of the ordinary, um, you know, illiterate or um, you know have they have unconventional views, etc. And um, also, um, but that the, the stories that involve perhaps a, a bit of a, a supernatural touch. Um, and I think uh, Last Birds is, is uh, a bit like that as well, in that the uh, the protagonist has his own sort of theological theories uh, about how the uh, the world operates in terms of gods and spirits and what have you, and and uh, he sees those at work in the happenings around him. Um, and I, I always like to in inject uh, some aspect of that into my writing. Well, that's wonderful. Well, look forward to that and uh, best wishes with the launch and the promotion of the book. Thank you very much. Yes, and that's, uh, yep, that's all we have time for today. Um, I told you it always goes too quickly. Our next yes. guest is the author of one of the most intense and disturbing books that I've read in a long time. Um, it is One Foot Wrong is the name of the novel and the author is Sophie Laguna and she'll be with us on the 20th of October to talk about that so we'll see you then thanks very much once again Andrew thank you very much bye bye all the best